Let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 is our text this morning. We've been going through the songs of Advent. Uh, we started with Mary's song, uh, then we, we had uh, Zechariah's song last week. This week we are, we are listening to the angel's song, and so like, i got to confess, as I did this one, you know, we're still a couple weeks away from Christmas, and it, it felt a little like, you know, this is the verse you read on Christmas Eve, this kind of feels a little bit early to read this verse, but here we are, and it makes sense that we're here in some way. Uh, and just to, to show you what a needy person I am and how I crave your approval, I'm going to throw out a technical opera term during the course of this sermon. And when I do so, I'm going to look to those people who might happen to be professional opera singers for a f- affirmation. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for uh, a warm, fuzzy feeling right here that, uh, that knows that I use this term correctly. And if I don't, affirm me anyway. That's all I'm, <laughs> we all need that. Um, this is Grace Community Church. All right. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, at this time of year, I remember an old, old pastor of mine used to, to get up in, in the pulpit and say, like, well, they're playing our songs in the malls and on the radios and, and everywhere you go, you can hear the songs of Christmas being played and uh, across the airwaves and... And it's true. You go, you go shopping and you hear, maybe it's elevator music version of those songs, but they're, they are playing the songs of Christmas. They are in the air. You turn on uh, the radio and you, you hear the gospel, at least on some level, being communicated through the music that is played, the good news of the coming of, of, of Jesus. And there's all of this stuff is wrapped up in the, the, the cultural celebration of Jesus as we, as we uh, kind of go through this time as a, as, as a particular culture, right? One of the most, one of the best ways that we've seen this, and one of the classic ways, and really one of the ways that until you watch it, it's not really Christmas, is of course the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And there's this I've, there's this, there's this article out there that's like a really in-depth article about the significance of Linus dropping his blanket at the, when he starts to read this. And I don't remember the significance of Linus dropping his blanket, but go Google it. But that moment in the Charlie Brown Christmas special is one that for me kind of just defines, yep, Christmas. Christmas is, is here, right? 
And, the, you know, so the, if you know the whole story of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, it's, it's all about Charlie Brown, who's kind of a pessimist, and he sort of is decrying the, the, uh, the, the materialism and the crassness of the Christmas season and the shallowness of Christmas. And, and it's really, you know, if you want to get psychological about it, it's a way for Charlie Brown to sort of make himself feel better about not getting any Christmas cards and not being included in the Christmas of It's sort of his way of coping with with the, the Christmas season that, that it's not, you know, it's too materialistic and too shallow and crass and focused on all the wrong things. And even his dog, even old Snoopy, right, gets into the Christmas uh, contest and wins first prize. And I just remember Charlie Brown, win money, money, money. And like that's like tr- Snoopy, Snoopy does it and Snoopy's all about it. And, and then, of course, at the end, there's what? That, that sad little... Christmas tree, right? The little Christmas tree that he puts the one little ornament on and it bends over and he goes, ah, I've killed it. But then Linus comes on the stage in the middle of this Christmas play that's run off the, the rails and he, he saves the day and he reads this passage. He reads Luke 2 or he, he recites Luke 2, uh, 8 through 12 uh, about the shepherds and and the, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special ends with just the whole gang having caught the spirit of Christmas through Linus's reading and reminding them of what it's really about. And they're, they're gathered around that little Christmas tree, which has been transformed and sings, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And, and, and the story of the angel song in that just kind of cuts through all of the the static of Christmas and all the interference of the commercialism and the the secularization of Christmas and and all of this and I tell you that and that was kind of a long way of saying it we need to be reminded that this story the story of Christmas is indeed a glory story it's a glory story and it's not about us It's not about our glory. It's not about your glory. It's not about the glory of the decorations that we put up around our homes. It's not about the glory of how many presents are under our Christmas tree. And then under our Christmas tree, there's exactly one present. Um, And so, like, don't feel bad if that's you. It's not about my list or my glory. This, This angelic oratorio... is about expressing the inexpressible, right? This concert that the angels put on for this limited audience is about expressing something that can't be expressed, really. And it's not just the song, but it's the whole picture. It's the whole effect of how it comes about. The setting and the the lighting and the whole production of this angelic choir that comes together to express something that words just fall short of expressing. The glory of the appearance of the Savior, the Messiah, the King, born as a helpless baby to a poor family. And as we move through Christmas... As we move through family events and office parties and church get-togethers and gatherings and and Christmas shopping and in stores and as we travel through airports and other places, there there is a business that we are to be about as God's people. 
And that business is expressing that glory, which is really inexpressible. Expressing God's glory in the the ordinary processes of life. Incorporating into the ordinary day of our life uh, the vocation of, of declaring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The vocation of demonstrating the mercy that he demonstrated to us. The vocation of delighting in the God of glory. Because the king has broken through. The king has broken into the world and we are to tell that story. The glory of the heavenly throne breaks into the world to announce the birth of the king who will bring peace. Peace through justice as far as the curse is found. So let's look at the recipients of the message, the meaning of the message, and then the lyrics of the song. First of all, the recipients of the message. Verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And so you need to know that in first century Judaism, in the, in the time and place that this was written to, the, that audience, shepherds, apart from lepers, shepherds were the most despised group of people in first century Judaism. It's not just that they were disliked or looked down upon, but they were one step above Lepers, And we all know that, you know, lepers are these unclean people that, that have to kind of keep themselves apart. But by the nature of their work and where they lived, which was outside in the field, shepherds were in a constant state of what we would have called ritual impurity. And if you've been in our, our uh, Leviticus class uh, over the last few weeks, you kind of know a little bit about this. So forgive me for kind of going over this again. But this, this idea of ritual impurity is an idea that we don't have in our culture and is very strange to us in our culture. But in that day and time, it was a very common thing to, and very well understood thing that you don't approach the, the holy place, the temple where the king of Israel lived, namely God, not the, not the king king, but, but the heavenly king. You don't approach the heavenly throne room on earth and bring with you defilement, right? And so you had to have a state of ritual purity. So I, I explain it like this. If your friend has a baby and you are well, you can go to the hospital and visit that baby and probably even hold that baby, right? But if you have a bad cold, you should not go to the hospital and hold the baby, right? Because you have a state of medical impurity, okay? Okay. If you are well and can hold a baby, that doesn't mean you can go into the operating room and perform surgery or at least watch a surgery, right? Because you haven't, there's another level of purity that you have to attain to that is focused on the ritual state. Like the shepherds were way down, way, way, way past never holding the baby. Like never, just don't even bother going to the hospital. You had, they would have had to go through so many cleansing rites and things to get rid of their state of impurity that they were cut off from the rest of society uh, for that reason. This had become a way, kind of a, a twisted way in that culture, to say not only were they ceremonially impure, which isn't necessarily tied to being a bad person, 
just circumstances. Not only were they ceremonially impure, but they were also culturally and socially impure. So in other words, uh, those who were culturally, it, it went from a way of being uh, distinguishing between uh, being people who can worship the Lord and people who aren't free to worship the Lord to being people who were desirable or undesirable in society in general. Does that make sense? I feel like I used a whole lot of words just to get to that, that one point. That those people were desirable and undesirable. That those who were, it, it, shepherds were not just ritually impure, but they were unacceptable in culture. They were culturally and religiously cut off. They were considered liars and thieves. Their testimony was inadmissible in court in that day because of their reputation. They were the working poor. They were, they were the people whose jobs were considered shameful or dirty, but without whom the economy would collapse. And so in Mary's song, if you remember that, when Mary sang, he has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate, this is who she means. She's talking about people just like the shepherds. And here's this concert, this whole production, if you will. And I don't mean to cheapen what happened on that night to refer to it like theater. Uh, but but it, it, this whole effect of the angels showing up and, and not just the sound of the song, but the sight of the, the choir and the glory. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Like, I have seen some pretty cool concerts in my day. Um, I, you know, and there have been, there's been one or two that have just been sort of once in a lifetime, like U2, right? I've seen U2. That's a once in a lifetime, uh, you know, DC talk, maybe, I don't know. Um, you know, my biggest regret is that I never got to see Pink Floyd in concert. And so like, but here's this once in a lifetime, not once in a lifetime, like once in the history of all creation, command special performance of, of the heavenly choir. And who does it show up to? A handful of rejects and rednecks who lived with livestock in a field. God announces the birth of his son. He announces the advent of the one who was promised from, from, from Genesis 3 on. He announces that to who? To the fringe. To the, to the kid at the end of the table in the cafeteria eating lunch by himself. To, to the awkward people. To the ones with poor hygiene. To the people with the past that they don't want anybody to know about. To the ones with the trust issues. To the disapproved of. The people with the recent, I'm supposed to know better because I call myself a Christian shame. In short, this good news of great joy about Jesus is for everybody. Come shepherd, come king, to own him is the invitation, right? That's the, that's the recipients of the message. The meaning of the message 
Verses 9 and 10, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. Let's kind of break this message down and what the angels say to the, to the shepherds. Fear not. First of all, the obvious and pretty much universal reaction to human beings meeting an angel is either to fall down in fear or to try to worship them. And so the shepherds are right in line with what the expectation is here. And so the first words that the angel utters to these rejects are comforting words. Comforting words of reassurance. You would have been frightened at this scene. It's not just the sound, but it's the, the image this, this being of light. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it. If you have that, go back and read it. This, this man clothed in lightning, I think is how it describes it. And there's the glory of the Lord. There is, there is fire. There is light. There are hosts and hosts of angels everywhere. And the angel wanted them to know, you're safe. Don't be afraid. Stop covering your faces. Look up and hear what we have to say to you because this is the most important thing that has ever been said on planet Earth. You need this message and you need to take it somewhere. He says, I bring you good news. The word there is euangelion, which is the Greek word for literally means good news. So good job translating that guys. Uh, I bring you gospel. I bring you the gospel, the ancient promises of the old Testament were starting to come true that the one that had been looked forward to for generation upon generation is starting to, to happen is going to appear The 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and the advent of Christ Jesus is over. And God's prophet has been born and will soon begin to announce that the one that has been looked forward to is here. Isaiah 61 says of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has appointed me, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The birth announcement that they are making is of the one of whom that prophecy was made. That they've been looking forward to this. This is good news beyond any kind of good news that they could ever imagine. But it's news of great joy. Naturally, the receiving of this news brought joy. This, this news brought great joy that, that God had become a man to, to save his people, that God had been born as a baby. is news that evokes in us delight and joy and gratitude. And that joy will be for all people, not just all people, but all of the people. And that the is important because it means the particular people of God, that this is a particular announcement to God's people who are waiting, the people of God's faithfulness. And here comes the evidence of God's faithfulness born among them as a babe. Those on whom he has set his saving and redeeming love. 
for us. And guys, we're the rejects. <laughs> we're the ones who, who are the fringe people. He calls us into his presence. He calls us and saves us by the flesh and blood of this baby that is born, that, that we are the people. But if you're sitting here today and you hear my voice and you don't know that Jesus is your savior, he's your savior. Run to him, embrace him, believe in him, trust in him. Stop struggling on your own and move to the one who has struggled and endured and won the victory for you. That's the good news of great joy. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This baby is born the deliverer of his people. He is born the Savior who would accomplish his rescue plan at the cost of his own life. He's born the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one promised from Genesis 3 onward. The baby that has been born holds the office of the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who, though he has his heel bruised, will ultimately defeat the great enemy and enemies of God's people. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. The baby that has been born on that night is the king of all the universe. He is no less than God. He is the ultimate and sovereign authority over all. He is the party against whom we rebelled in our sinfulness. He is the one to whom our sin owes the debt. He is the grieved party in our malfeasance. He is the one that we sinned against, born to pay the penalty for our sins. If these shepherds are ever going to find this Savior, this Messiah, this King, they better have some directions. And so verse 12, it will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You would never think to look for the Savior or Messiah King in a feeding trough. When we picture him wearing the rags of poverty on Christmas... It's not that far of a leap to picture him wearing nothing, hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying for the sins that we have committed. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah. He is our King. And then the oratorio begins. Then the concert begins. Then the the song takes up, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So Mary's song was known as the Magnificat. Zechariah's song was known as the, uh, the, can't even think of what it is now. This one's known as the Gloria. Well, I'll go look up what Zechariah was called last week, but the Gloria, because the first words are Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest This is the glory story. The lyrics of the song, this is glory amplified. From eternity past, these same angels 
have been worshiping God with the same voices that they are, that, that they are using now to sing to these outcasts and rejects, these shepherds. But now God himself was leaving the sound of their voices singing and coming down and being born in a manger to be despised and killed to save his people. This was the most glorious demonstration God had ever made of his marvelous grace. And so the song followed them. The song comes down with him because it's the ultimate expression of his divine righteous hatred of sin and his merciful love for sinners. It's the ultimate provision of God for his people's deepest need. This is his glory song. Let me ask you this question. How can we sing it? How can we sing this song? Glory to God in the highest. He healed me when I was sick. Glory to God in the highest. He sent the comforting love of friends when I was hurting. Glory to God in the highest. Even though I lost my job, he has given us bread for each day, and I know what it means to rely on him for life. Glory to God in the highest that I I have sinned against those closest to me, and yet he gave them the capacity and the willingness to forgive me. Glory to God in the highest. My life has just gone off the rails in every possible way, and I'm still in the middle of it. And I'm scared, but I know he has a plan. Glory to God in the highest. Most of all, and every second of every day, I've sinned against him. And he covered my sin with the blood of the baby whose birth we are proclaiming. That's the lyrics of the song. We're the people of his glory. Who are the people of his pleasure? Who are those to whom his favor rests? Those on whom he bestows peace. Peace on earth. Those with whom he is pleased. How do I know if he's pleased with me? Whose life does he see when he looks at you? If you're in Christ, the good news is he doesn't see your life. That your life has been hidden with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And now when God the Father looks on you, even in judgment, he doesn't see your life. He sees the perfect life of Christ Jesus lived for you. The perfect life of the baby born in the manger lived for you. Fulfilling each and every jot and tittle of the law perfectly. He sees the death of Christ, his blood covering your sins, making atonement and covering up your guilt, taking away your guilt and the shame. So that's why he's pleased with you. Because his mercy and his grace has covered your guilt and your shame. And he has given you by that same grace the perfection of his life. How do I know he's still pleased with me? 
That's the question that haunts me, and maybe it haunts you. How do I know that the thing I did yesterday hasn't somehow tipped the scales against me, and now God is, is, is ultimately and finally and completely done with me? He's had it with me. He's out of patience. You can't overshadow Christ's perfect life with your sinning. That Christ's perfect life is so perfect and glorious and so his salvation and atonement so complete and full that you can't outsin his grace. And as we live in the reality of that, that awakens in us this desire then to live a life that more and more reflects his life. As we live in the reality of this peace, the glory of this shalom. That's what real peace is. It was in history, you can go back and you can study this thing called the Pax Romana. Caesar Augustus and the Pax Romana, right? And so the Pax Romana was this period of Roman conquest in history where by the sheer might and strength of the Roman Empire, Caesar, Caesar held peace together. That there was trade and there was growth and there was expansion and, and he established it How? (laughs) By ruthlessly crushing everyone in his way. He established it by conquering and enslaving peace. Was the Pax Romana peace? No. You can have shalom. True peace. Shalom is a a Hebrew word which simply means harmony. Harmony in all of life. And what Christ does by by giving you this peace with God, by covering your sin with his blood and covering your life with his life, it mends relationships that are broken by sin. He mends the relationships in your life that are broken. The relationship between you and God, the relationship between you and yourself, the relationship between you and other people, the relationship between you and the world, that is the kind of complete and perfect peace that we look forward to in the day when we are brought to live with him forever. That is the kind of peace that we will have, but it's also the kind of peace that we can experience now as he, through the sanctifying work of his spirit, through, through the word, through the sacraments, through prayer, he is conforming us more and more into the image of his son. What that really means is he is healing those broken relationships over time between God and self and others in the world. Because why would you need peace if you were not at war? And the purpose of peace is to describe the change in that relationship from one of conflict and division to one of unity. Romans 5, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, the healing of those broken relationships. Glory to God, not just any kind of glory. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Heaven and earth are coming down in the form of this baby, and ultimately one day, someday, literally and fully, 
when he returns again as we look forward to the advent of his second coming. That the glory of the one who sits on the heavenly throne has been concealed, but only for a moment in humanity. Remember Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And through his humanity, he will make atonement that will purchase for his people. That will purchase peace for his people. And the, the purpose of that peace is reconciliation. That's what's available to us. That as we come to this table, we can't come to this table unless there's a baby that's born. And a baby who lives. And a baby whose flesh is torn and broken and whose blood is spilled for us. That is what God, through Christ Jesus, through, through the Savior, Messiah, King, is offering to us. And we can receive it by grace through faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the peace that is ours, the reconciliation that is ours through his life and through his death. We thank you, Lord, that you are in fact healing those broken relationships between God, ourself, others, and the world. We thank you that, that this story reflects in a unique way your, the, the glorious truth of your character and nature as you stoop to save your people. We pray that you would, even now as we approach your table, remind us of the glory of your mercy that is ours through Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.